If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And we'll begin reading with verse 11 of that chapter. Down through verse 21. Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11 down through the end of the chapter as we read together. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth his sharp sword, that with it it should smite the nations, and shall rule with them a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and set on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sat on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, and the kings of the earth, and the armies, and gathered together to make war against him that sat on a horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophets that wrought miracles before him, which he hath received them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Father, we come before you thanking you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your word that we can read from, study from, and hear it preached. Father, I thank you for our pastor, and Lord, I just pray that you will fill him with your power, with your spirit, and as he comes to preach us to him, that you will just flow through him. And up and down every aisle, and then sit there and speak to our hearts, Father, we're needy people, and we need to hear, your, hear from you and get a touch from you, Father, and I just pray that you'll be with each and every one that's listening. And Father, meet every need, because Father... We're needy people, and God, I just pray that you'll guide us, direct us, and Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you as our personal Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. And Father, we thank you for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Revelation chapter 19 tonight, and I want to speak to you on the subject, Jesus comes to earth with his saints. I believe the men gave out a worksheet as you came in tonight. If you did not get one, anybody not have one? Okay, we got a lot of folks who don't have one. We'll find out who's got the extras there. Somebody help skip there, and we'll get those out. So just keep your hand up for a minute, and uh, we'll get them to everybody, and you can have them for this evening and help you out. Talking about the Lord coming back to earth with his saints, and of course in this chapter of the Battle of Armageddon that takes place, and we're familiar with that, many of you are. In the early part of the chapter, the Bible talks about the wedding, and it was described in two movements. And the same thing is true with the war that's given to us in the last part of this chapter. Once this Armageddon 
the last war before the millennium begins, once the Lord appears on the scene, it's very quickly going to be over. It won't last very long. And so I want us to look at some things in relation to the, to the Lord's coming to the earth. Remember, he's coming back twice. Amen? First time he's coming for the saints. We're going to be caught up together. That's what the Tackett kids were singing about. I'll fly away when he comes and calls us out of here. Second time he's coming with the saints. We're coming back with him to this earth. And he'll set up his kingdom and rule and reign for a thousand years. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have Jesus as president of the United States of America? It's going to be great when he rules from Jerusalem as the king and all the world will be in subjection to him. So notice with me, first of all, tonight, the Lord's coming is described in verses 11 through 16, and we'll read those verses as we go along. His coming is described. Now, as I mentioned, this is not the coming in the air to call the saints out. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and that comes also in Revelation chapter 4. As far as the book of Revelation is concerned, chapter 4 is when the rapture takes place. And so this is coming at the end of the, of the tribulation period, at the end of seven years of the tribulation here on this earth. He's coming to the earth with his church to deal with his enemies by force of arms. He's going to impose upon mankind the error of peace. And then and only then there will be peace on this earth. And it'll be a wonderful time to be alive. There will be alive as far as coming back with him. There'll be many that will be alive that will go through that tribulation period. Now notice with me, if you would, first of all, what we're told about his nature. The Lord's coming. He is coming at that battle of Armageddon. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. What are we told about his nature? Verse number 11 tells us, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now this is a great unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to earth. He's coming to earth again, not with all of the, the glory veiled like it was at his first coming, but he's going to come in pomp and in power and in martial uh, power with the banner of war, you might say, unfurled. And we find in this verse, the Bible says that he is faithful and true. Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. By the way, those are names of Jesus, but they ought to also be characteristics of Christians, of followers of Jesus. Amen? We're to be faithful, we're to be true. Amen. The great aggressors of the world have all used their various propaganda techniques from time to time. They try to control their enemies by distorting and dramatizing and dissembling the truth. But aren't you glad when Jesus comes back, there's going to be one who is true? Amen? We have a lot of uh, manipulation of facts in the media today, don't we? But when Jesus comes, the truth will be known. At last, there'll come one who is faithful and true. That is his very nature. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He is the truth. It's impossible for him to be anything else. No attempts are made by him to persuade the world that he is king. He's just going to come back as king. It will be evident to all that he is king of kings and lord of lords. 
He's called faithful back in Revelation chapter 1, if you'll go back with me to verse number 5. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He's called faithful there in chapter 1 and verse 5. And then the Bible says back in chapter 19 verse 11, he's faithful and true. He's called true several times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. He is coming back, and he, they'll see him who is, has been pierced, and they'll see his, his nail-pierced hands. And, and verse 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was, and which is to come the Almighty. Look at chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 14. It says in chapter 3 and verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. He is the faithful and the true witness. And then all the way back to the end in Revelation chapter 22, last book or last chapter of the Bible, in verse number 6, it says, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly, come, shortly be done. He's faithful and true. Again, the Lord reminds us in John, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, many of us know the verse, it says, If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God looks back to the cross in faithfulness to all that was accomplished there. And because of what took place on the cross at Calvary, he can say to us when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. And then notice this, it says, He cannot deny himself. He can't be anything else. He's faithful. That's his nature. That's who he is. So we see, first of all, we're told about his nature. He's faithful and true. And then also notice in our, in our first verse there that we read, verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war, the end of the verse tells us. He's going to judge and make war, and it will be in righteousness. Every nation that goes to war against their enemies uses some pretext for the war. They try to convince the people and the world that they have a righteous cause for going to war. We do that as a, as a nation in America. When we go to war, we, gotta, we, we try to convince Congress that it's the right thing to do. We try to convince the rest of the world it's the right thing to do. Hitler claimed that his aggressions were just and righteous compensation for the grievances at Versailles. The Western world claims that its cause is just. They were fighting one of the most frightful dictators the world has ever known. You see, everybody's cause is right in their own eyes. Amen? But here in Revelation, one who truly is right, and the Bible says in righteousness, he is right, he doth judge and make war. When God goes to war, he is right. He is right. The Lord is a man of war. Throughout the Bible, he's called a man of war. He's called the Lord of hosts. The host of heaven. It's an amazing title when you think about it. The Son of God, a man of war. Alexander White in his commentary on Bunyan's, Bunyan's Holy War said this. He said, Holy Scripture is full of wars and rumors of wars. The wars of the Lord, 
the wars of Joshua and the judges, the wars of David with his many other magnificent battle songs, till the best-known name of the God of Israel in the Old Testament is the Lord of hosts. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ described to us as the captain of our salvation. He's the captain. He's the captain of the hosts of heaven. And then the whole Bible is crowned with a book sounding the battle cries till, the, till it ends with the city of peace where they hang their trumpets and they study war no more. And that's what will happen in the end of the book of Revelation. So the Lord is a man of war, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. When he makes war, it is right. It was for the right cause. It will be for the right purpose. Now, let me just say this. War is not wrong in itself. Don't misunderstand. There are times when we have to go to war to protect our nation, protect our people, protect our families. And the Bible teaches that we should do that. It is not wrong to go to war. It is the sin that makes war necessary that is wrong. That's the important thing to remember. The judge that sentences the murderer to the electric chair is not wrong. We have some people in California that think he is wrong, but he's not wrong. It is the murderous heart that is wrong, not the judgment that is placed upon it. It is not the judge. It is not the police officer that is wrong. It's the person who has committed the crime, the person who has done the wrong that is wrong. Here in Revelation, the judging has been going on throughout the breaking of the seals, throughout the blowing of the trumpets, and the pouring out of the boil of the bowls. God is showing his judgment and his wrath, and now God makes war. He, for long centuries, has endured patiently the scoffing insults that have made against him by man, who for ages has contemplated Calvary and, and all the humid hatred and, and contempt that was displayed there towards Almighty God, and who through the millennia has made peace through the blood of his cross. Now he makes war over that blood. For human sin has reached its zenith, and it must be put down by the force of God himself. But there won't be much fighting that will take place when this battle is engaged. In fact, it will be over in just a flash. It will be done and over with. So we're told about his nature, the nature of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice we're told about his name. Notice his name in verse number 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. No man knew but he himself. In other words, his name is the name of mystery. It is a mystery, the name. And by the way, the name of Jesus is a mystery to a lot of people in our world today. They've not heard the name of Jesus. I remember I witnessed to a, to a young man, teenager, some years ago. He, uh, I, I lived in Wheaton, Maryland at the time, and I was pastoring a church there. And right across the street from our church was a high school. And I was there at the church doing some work, and a, and a, and a young man came across the, down the hill and across the road up by the church, and I went over, and, and the Lord just impressed on me to, to go talk to him, and I went over, and I talked to him, witnessed to him, but he made this statement to me, I've never forgotten, he said, I've never heard the name of Jesus other than as a curse word in my home. What a sad testimony for somebody that lives in the United States of America. I wonder how many young people have never heard the name of Jesus other than they hear it as a curse word used in the wrong way in their home. The name of Jesus here is a mystery, but it shouldn't be a mystery to us. We ought to be proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and pointing people to him. The Bible tells us that the Lord is crowned 
with many diadems, he says here on his head, were many crowns. When he was here on earth, man mockingly put a crown of thorns on his head. Those thorns were emblems of the curse. He became a curse for us so that we might be forgiven and we might be able to wear the crown of righteousness and gladly lay it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. His human name is covered in mystery. His human name is Jesus, but it's used by the world as a curse word. It's used by godless men and women as a curse word. They have scorned his name, which reveals to men what our wonderful God is like and who he is. And now he bears the name in verse 11, it's, it's uh, verse 12, a mystery. They cannot know him even if they wanted to. There's always been mysteries that have been connected with Jesus, with God the Son, even while he was here on this earth. In fact, they asked Jesus when he calmed the storm and calmed the sea, they said, what manner of man is this? It was a mystery that there was a God-man who could just simply speak and the wind stopped and the storm was calm and the sea was calm. How exciting to know that even in heaven, you and I are still going to be learning new things about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing that'll be. His name is the name of mystery. And then his name is the name of ministry. It's the name of ministry. Look at verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and, shall, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He now has a ministry far different from what he had when he came to this earth as the Word made flesh. The Word full of truth, full of grace. His ministry now in Revelation is not grace and truth. It's a, it's a ministry of war and battle and blood. He is heaven's minister, but he's ministering heaven's war that's going to take place. And his name is called, the Bible says, the Word of God. The sword coming out of his mouth is God's Word. In Genesis 1, we've been quoting the verses and memorizing and learning them about creation. In Genesis 1, all Jesus had to do, all God had to do was speak the Word and everything was created. I mean the stars and the sun and the moon and the universes, all of it, just the spoken Word of God. God spoke everything into existence from nothing. He spoke and it took place. Could I tell you the last battle on this earth, this battle of Armageddon, will be won by a word. It's not going to be a great big war and battle and slaughter uh, on both sides. It's just going to be the word of God that's spoken and the victory is won. He'll speak and that's all. And his enemies will be destroyed right where they stand. His white garment, the Bible says, is dyed red with blood and the armies of heaven followed him. In verse 13, he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. The white linen, clean and fine, identifies the host of believers. That represents you and me who are coming back with him. We're clothed in fine linen that is white and clean and pure. It's been made white by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can wear divine righteousness because he first wore the blood-stained blood garments on the cross at Calvary. 
In Jude verses 14 and 15, Enoch cried out, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all. The armies of heaven will come with him, riding on white horses, following his procession. These armies are definitely real. Elisha caught a glimpse of those armies one time. If you hold your finger there in Revelation 19, go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, and look at verse number 13. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 13, notice what it says. It says, And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dotham. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? The Syrians had surrounded the city, and they were far outnumbered. And the servant said, How are we going to do? How are we going to win this battle? Verse 16, And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The armies of heaven are real. And they're going to come with the Lord and will come along with them. What a sight it will be to see wicked men gathered together by the millions in war against one common foe. They're coming against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What a sight it will be for them. Again, they'll be deceived by the smooth words and the smooth talking of the beast and the false prophet and the dragon into believing that they are, they're going to settle the accounts with heaven once and for all. Boy, did it amazing sort of reminds you of the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a tower up to heaven. Here they're going to be saying, we're going to destroy the armies of heaven. But what a sight will be when they look up and when they see the skies filled with the armies of heaven, they will see them, the hosts of heaven as they come, and the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, riding on a white horse, followed by rank after rank after rank of endless armies of the redeemed and heaven's angelic powers. And suddenly... The boasted powers and armies of the beast will shrink back in fear as they see the hosts of heaven. And then notice, not only is his name ministry, but his name is majesty, majesty. His name is majesty in verse number 16. Majestic is his name. Verse 16, and he hath on his vesture and on his throne or on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see... He is not merely the king of the Jews, as Pilate said. He is the king of the whole world. He's king of kings and lord of lords. The times of the Gentiles come to a screeching halt with the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that he has a vesture and on his thigh a name written. That's interesting. He talks about the thigh. The thigh on which the title is written symbolizes power. He's coming in great power. You remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel back in the Old Testament? And the angel, what did he do? He touched the thigh of Jacob. And Jacob lost his power to resist and he was broken. 
The Messiah's sword is seen upon his thigh. It represents his power that he has. Psalm 45 and verse 3 says, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. The thigh is associated with power. The vesture that's mentioned here is associated with position. Joseph's brothers, when they sold him into slavery, they took his vesture, his coat of many colors, you remember, and they dipped it in the blood of a wild animal, and they, they, that, that coat of many colors spoke of his position. And they took it and dipped it in blood and threw it at their father's feet to say that your son has been killed and those dreams that he had about all of us bowing down, that's all gone, that's never going to happen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and his vesture, the Bible says, was dipped in blood. But it's the blood of his enemies. And it's embroidered on that vesture, the title that he will be known for thousands of years as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One day he's coming back to this earth and he'll set up his kingdom. So we see the Lord's coming described. Secondly, I want you to see the Lord's conquest described. His conquest, the victory, what he faces in this battle. Satan's empire is going to collapse like a house of cards when the Lord Jesus Christ appears. And we find in relation to Satan's forces, first of all, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. All of the forces, all the armies of the earth that he gathers together, they are doomed at Armageddon. If you look at verse number 13, it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. What is he talking about? The great supper of the, of the great God. God is calling together all the fowls, all the vultures, all of these birds, because all of these people, all of the armies of the devil are going to be killed, wiped out. And God will call together all of the vultures and all of the, uh, what, what do you call those, uh, those black birds that, that feed on dead animals and so forth? What are they called? Buzzards, buzzards. That's what I was trying to think. All the buzzards that will be called together. And, and I know sometimes I've been driving down the road, I think, at one particular time, and, and there was a fence post, several fence posts, and there was buzzards on all of them, and there was an had been hit on the road, and, and when the cars would go back, they'd all pile down on there, and, and it's going to be like that. God's going to call all the fowl to come and, and, and gather themselves together, he says, into the supper of the great God. Satan's forces are going to be doomed. They will be destroyed. The armies will assemble on earth. They'll stare with amazement at the King of kings and the Lord of glory, and that gaze will momentarily be directed toward the Son, the Son of God, as he comes from heaven. There, standing is the, in the glare, is an angel. At his summon, enormous flocks of birds appear, circling the armies of the earth. These birds are called out in anticipation of the coming feast that they're going to have. The battle has not yet been fought, but the scene is dreadful. I can imagine these, anim these armies, as they see all of those buzzards and all of those uh, hawks and all of that, they see them all flying around as they're preparing. You know, sometimes um, you see 
when you're those guys, you guys who are hunters, sometimes we're out hunting, sometimes even when you're just driving down the road, there'll be a dead animal over in the field somewhere, off in a distance, and you look up and you'll just see kind of a whole flock of those buzzards kind of circling around. Can you imagine when all the world, they've all gathered together and they're just kind of flying around, what that army must think as they see all of them flying around just getting ready to come and to feast on that, those, those bodies that are going to be destroyed. With each passing moment, the sky grows darker and darker with these birds. There cannot be a vulture, an eagle, or a raven left anywhere on this earth that has not obeyed the summons to come to the supper of the dead, the supper of God. Satan's armies are doomed. They're going to be destroyed. These fierce vultures know it, and they've come to bury the dead in the name of the living God. Isn't it amazing that the birds, the vultures, and all that are obedient to God, but the people on earth weren't obedient to God? You know, it's amazing how many times in Scripture you find how nature and animals and various things obeyed God. One time, one time Peter, I think it was, needed some money to pay the taxes, and Jesus said, you go fishing, and the first fish you catch, you open his mouth, and there'll be a coin in there. Well, how did that coin get in the fish's mouth? God had to tell him where to go. God had to tell him where to come. When, God, when those men threw Jonah overboard, there was a, a great whale that swallowed him. Somebody had to tell that whale to be there at the right time. The animals. Remember when Peter denied the Lord, the Bible said the, the, the crow would, the cock would crow uh, three times. Who told him to do that? God did. Even animals are obedient to God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were as obedient to him? Satan's forces are doomed. And then Satan's forces are also drawn to Armageddon. They're doomed, but they are drawn there. Verse 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Whatever may have been their original motive in converging on Armageddon is forgotten. And these armies are now united by the challenge from on high, from Almighty God. This is no science fiction. This is not some fantasy. This is the real thing. Planet Earth is being invaded from outer space, not by horrible insect-like monsters, but by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the glorious hosts of heaven that will come with him. And the devil knows that his hour has come. But careless of human life, he fights to the bitter end. And all of the nations of the world unite together behind him. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. It's the same old story. The nations were, were united against the Lord Jesus Christ when he came the first time. The early church spoke about it in Acts chapter 2 in verses 24 and following. They did their worst when they crucified Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. But all they did when they crucified him was succeed in accomplishing his will. Their plan to destroy and defeat him fulfilled his plan to provide salvation for mankind. And they will do the same when they unite against the Lord and oppose his return. The nation imagine that they are working out their own scheme and plans, they will be no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're simply marching to that battle in step with the will of God, and they are drawn to that Armageddon, and they will be destroyed. 
Notice Satan's forces are destroyed at Armageddon. They will be destroyed. Look at verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, that's those who have received the, the mark, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the fire. The, the beast, the dragon, the, those that worship the image, they're, they're, they're cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What a scene. These armies march across the fertile plains of Galilee and the fields of Megiddo. What a mass of military equipment. The stockpile of all of the, of the military equipment that takes place in the hills all around. The fleets that are gathered together on the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea. All of those there. And I believe the ground literally shakes with the marching feet of this great host this great army. At the same time, the skies may well even be darkened with the aircraft. We've got all kinds of, uh, of firepower today from the air, don't we? Can you imagine all of them coming to this war and this battle of Armageddon ready to end all that is taking place here? I think there will probably even be amazing new weapons that we haven't even seen yet that will be designed by the Antichrist, by the beast, by the dragon. They'll all be brought into place. Miracles will be performed by the false prophet to encourage the troops and to encourage the armies to come and fight. The final commands are given. And suddenly, it's all over. Just the word of God and it's over. In fact... There'll be no war at all. There's not going to be a great battle. It's just going to be simply the word of God and it's over. The word is spoken by him who sits on the white horse. And once he spoke the word, it's over. One time in the New Testament, the Lord spoke a word and a fig tree withered away. Another time he spoke, as I said, on the ship to the howling storms and the billowing waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves stilled just at, still just at the spoken word of God. One time he spoke to a, to a man who was possessed with demons and immediately the demons fled. And now he'll speak the word and the war will be over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. He will be, along with the false prophet, along with the with, with the devil, they will be cast into the pit, into the lake of fire, he says in verse number 20. He said, they, they, these both are cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What an amazing thing. What an amazing story. You know, sometimes people think about the devil and, and they think, you know, he's going to be down in hell someday. If he's not there now, he's going to be there someday giving orders and telling people what to do. No, Satan will be the most tormented creature in hell forever and forever. And the Lord says here, he's going to be cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I don't know about you, but it's going to be a wonderful thing when the devil is put down. Amen. And we don't have to deal with him anymore when the world doesn't have to deal with him anymore. And for a thousand years, there'll be peace on this earth 
Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, the Bible says. Their tanks will be turned into tractors and their missiles silo, will become silos for the grain from the harvest. The words of war will become archaic words that will be dead to mankind. And the Bible says there will be no more war. What a wonderful thing. We deal with war now. In fact, as we get closer to the rapture and the coming of the Lord, the Bible says we're going to see wars and rumors of wars. And we see that in our world today, don't we? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was no more war? Well, I tell you, I think of these dear people, especially the Christians in Ukraine and what they're going through. And if you know history, you know what's happened in the past and with Hitler. And you go on back to the Crusades and all the wars that have happened through the years. World War One, World War Two, and wars that affect our nation and our country. And there's coming a day when there will be no more war. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if countries, if leaders could just sit down and talk things out and work things through and say, okay, let's not have war, let's have peace. But the Bible says there's not going to be any peace till the Prince of Peace comes. Until he sits on the throne. And when he rules from Jerusalem, there will be no more war. There will be peace on earth, goodwill toward man, as the angels sang when Jesus was born. I'm glad that we won't have to be a part of this false army the devil's army, the world's army that fights against the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come with him, we'll be a part of his army, but we don't have to worry about fighting. You know, there won't be any casualties on our side, amen? There won't even be any friendly fire on our side. It'll just be the word of God, and it's done, and it's over. What an amazing God we have. You know, you think about all the false gods in our world today that are worshipped. I saw a little thing just, just yesterday, I think it was, a, a news clip of in one of the cities in the United States, they showed this demon-looking creature in one of the high schools that has a Satan in the high schools. And that's taking place right here in America. How can we worship anything like that when we have a God who is so powerful that all he has to do is just speak and all of that's wiped out? We have a God who is great and mighty. We've talked about the mighty God that we serve. And the powerful God. I'm glad I'm on the right side. Amen? Amen. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're on the right side too. If you don't know Him, you'll be on the wrong side of this battle if you're still living then. And you'll be on the wrong side for all of eternity. I'm sure glad we can get on the right side. Amen? And that we know the true and living God. If our God is so great and mighty and powerful then we ought to do everything we can to help people get on the right side. Amen? So that they can spend eternity with the Lord and not spend eternity in hell forever. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. What a wonderful thing it is to know that we're on the winning side. and To know that we have a God and a Savior who is real and who in your grace and in your mercy give us the opportunity now to come to you, to repent of our sin, to trust you as Lord and Savior, and get on the right side. And though man has mocked and fought against and rebelled against you, you have patiently waited, but there will come a time when the patience will end. And in righteousness, 
you'll go to war and destroy those that oppose you. We don't understand everything about all that's involved in evil and good and right and wrong allowed to be in this world at the same time. We don't understand everything. I don't know why you just don't wipe out all the evil now, but you've given us a free will and we can make choices and we can enjoy the blessings of the right choices or we enjoy the, or suffer the consequences of the wrong choices. Help us to make right choices. Help us to follow you, the only true God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.